Hello and welcome to Season 5 of Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. And we're very glad to be joining you once again to move headlines from the back burner to the front. I'm very excited to be back, Jeff, for another year of interesting politics. Me too. I hope you had a good summer. I had a fantastic one yourself. Absolutely. And we'll get to hear a little bit more about our adventures as the year goes on. But what's on the program today? Well, I'm going to be talking to Angela Day, who is an author of a recent article that's submitted in the September issue of Canadian Dimension magazine, and it regards immigration. I'll be speaking to a couple of old favorites around here at Alert Radio. Saul Landau, author, filmmaker, will be talking to us about the war on terrorism in the age of Obama. And Jim Stanford, one of the chief economists at the Canadian Auto Workers, will be talking to us about the position of the Canadian and the global economy. We also will have Mitch Podolik, our new member of the Alert team, doing Music is the Weapon. And of course, we'll have headlines and Around the Left in seven days. That and much more on this season of Alert Radio. These are the Alert headlines for the week of September 10th, 2009. Last week, the Manitoba government responded with positive action to the plea from the Native Women's Association regarding missing women in the province. The RCMP and Winnipeg Police Task Force are now working together on an investigation of more than 75 missing women, mostly Aboriginal. An action group has been put together to protect these women and deal with the crisis. Beverly Jacobs, president of the Native Women's Association, wants to extend the investigation nationwide. The Native Women's Association has recorded 520 cases of missing and murdered women in Canada. Despite Amnesty's international Stolen Sisters report five years ago, which highlights the need for action, the federal government has not yet carried out a national investigation. The Obama administration's recent approval of the Enbridge oil pipeline between Canada and the U.S. has been met with protests from environmental groups in both countries. The pipeline will carry 450,000 to 800,000 barrels of crude oil from Alberta to refineries in Michigan. This will cause a 907-ton increase of carbon emissions. Protesters are concerned that this will create long-term problems for the environment. The Leech Lake Tribal Council of Minnesota and environment advocates such as Earth Justice intend on taking the issue to court. President Obama's earlier statements of his concern for tar sands-related greenhouse gas emissions fall short when matched with his approval for the pipeline. Environmentalists are questioning President Obama's seriousness about the environment in other matters as well. Green Jobs czar Anthony Van Jones has resigned from his position as the White House Special Advisor for Green Jobs after being publicly criticized by politicians from several parties. The criticism was based on the 9-11 conspiracy theory petition that Van Jones had previously signed. Van Jones said that the petition's extreme statements do not reflect his views, but rather he believes that a more serious inquiry into 9-11 should have taken place. The Obama administration was unwilling to fight for Van Jones to keep his position in the White House. John Grayson, filmmaker of the documentary Covered, has withdrawn his film from the Toronto Film Festival after the festival ignored the call for a boycott of Israel by over 150 Palestinian unions, teacher associations and other civil society groups. 
The Toronto International Film Festival chose to spotlight the city of Tel Aviv by selecting a collection of Israeli films for this year's festival. This decision feeds right into Israel's new brand Israel campaign designed, in the words of Arya Mekel, Deputy Director General for Cultural Affairs for Israel's Foreign Ministry, to show Israel's prettier face. The campaign to counter growing global anger at Israel's defiance of international law went into high gear after the attack on Gaza. Grayson feels that with the inaugural city-to-city spotlight on Tel Aviv, it would be inappropriate to allow his film to be screened at the festival. Many other prominent filmmakers and artists feel similarly and have signed a letter of protest against the spotlight on Tel Aviv. The Toronto Declaration, No Celebration Under Occupation letter, asks for more attention to be given to Gaza. Those who have signed the letter include Danny Glover, Jane Fonda, Naomi Klein, Pulitzer Prize winner Alice Walker and acclaimed director Ken Loach. They believe that the TFF celebration of Tel Aviv suggests that the festival has become complicit in the Israeli propaganda campaign. They want to make it clear that this is not a boycott on the festival itself. Israel's ban on allowing citizens of Palestinian origin from entering parts of the country is affecting Americans and Canadians with Palestinian background. The U.S. has demanded an end to the restriction, but the Harper government in Canada is doing little to get involved. Monir Ayares, president of the Association of Palestinian Arab Canadians, is disappointed by Canada's dismissal of this discrimination. IRA says the Harper government wants to disown Palestinian Canadians. In response to American disapproval, the Israeli government has agreed to reassess the ban. Documents released several weeks ago indicate that aberrations in the CIA interrogation strategies have been authorized by the White House for years. The brutal procedures used in these torture methods were chronicled in accordance with medical guidelines. Amnesty International's Policy Director for Counterterrorism, Tom Parker, is alarmed by the situation. He said that the documents show how deeply rooted this new culture of mistreatment became. The Department of Justice insists that the government's close involvement with the CIA interrogation strategies is a way to ensure that the program's rules are followed. In a recent submission to the anti-Semitism inquiry being held by the Canadian Parliamentary Coalition to Combat Anti-Semitism, Independent Jewish Voices of Canada says it believes the coalition's assertion that anti-Semitism is rising across Canada is unfounded. Independent Jewish Voices describes the coalition as an illegitimate endeavor. In the statement, IJV also notes that the coalition fails to address how racial profiling is being promoted by governments around the world. Independent Jewish Voices of Canada is concerned with universal human rights and represents a diverse range of perspectives among Canadian Jews. Protests against the privatization of a steel mill have met with success in the Henan province of China. One official was taken hostage and a steel industry executive was beaten to death by rioters, leading Chinese authorities to halt the privatization. Experts on Chinese labor issues believe that the protesters' triumph will cause workers in other industries to protest privatization as well. Professor Mary Gallagher, director of the Center for Chinese Studies at the University of Michigan, said that the steel industry has been heavily affected by the global economic downturn and that privatization could be costly all across China. And now, Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of September 10th, 2009. 
The World Peace March is a public demonstration with two immediate aims, the abolition of nuclear weapons and the withdrawal of all armies of occupation. The march begins October 2nd in Wellington, New Zealand, and ends January 2nd, 2010 in Punta de Vacas, Argentina. During this time, there are many demonstrations, lectures, forums and conferences across the world, including Canada, to discuss the need for world peace and nonviolence. The independent socialist magazine Monthly Review celebrates its 60th anniversary this month. If you are in New York on Thursday, September 17th, go and check out the New York Society for Ethical Culture for their anniversary party. Speakers include the editor of the Monthly Review, John Bellamy Foster, Robert McKesney, founder of Free Press, and criminal defense attorney and law professor Michael Tigar. Tickets are priced on a pay-what-you-can basis and can be purchased at monthlyreview.org. On September 11th, show your solidarity with 150 workers at the Coast Plaza Hotel on Denman Street in Vancouver, whose jobs are being threatened. Coast plans on closing the Denman Street location and opening a new hotel nearby in time for the 2010 Olympics, but refuses to talk about transfer rights with their employees. The average housekeeper at Coast has worked there for 16 and a half years, most are women and immigrants. Coast needs to respect the rights of their employees and recognize their years of service to the company. The public demonstration begins at 5 p.m. at the Coast Coal Harbour Hotel, 1180 Hastings Street at Brute. Canadian Dimension contributor Corvin Russell is leading a public education workshop entitled Supporting Indigenous Struggle in Canada, Starting the Journey. The workshop primarily targets non-Indigenous people, but of course all are welcome. And will the workshop will discuss the history of Indigenous-Canada relations as a necessary step towards building the skills and consciousness necessary for solidarity work. The workshop is held in Toronto at the Centre for Social Innovation on Wednesday, September 16th at 6.30 p.m. Pedal for the Planet cyclists who have rode from across the country to demonstrate their personal commitment to reducing greenhouse gas emissions will hit Parliament Hill on Tuesday, September 15th. Join the cyclists and other activists in Ottawa who are demanding Canada take an active role in greenhouse gas reduction and climate change legislation in preparation for the UN meeting in Copenhagen in December. Demonstrations begin around noon. The Canadian Latin American Trade Unionists Conference, held the weekend of September 11th to 13th at the Steelworkers Hall, 25 Cecil Street in Toronto, has a simple aim, to establish a network of Latino laborists across Canada. Both both unionized and non-unionized Latino laborers are encouraged to attend. And that is Around the Left in seven days for the week of September 10th, 2009. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on Around the Left in 7 Days. Welcome once again to Alert Radio, Jim Stanford. Now, before we start the interview, I'd like to share with our listeners uh, an unusual introduction, a review of your book, Economics for Everyone, that we just published in the September issue of Canadian Dimension magazine. The reviewer, Simon Black, said this of you, our first guest on the new season of Alert Radio. Jim Stanford is Canada's answer to the American public intellectuals such as Paul Krugman, Joseph Stieglitz, only more radical, and indeed our most formidable political economist since John Kenneth Galbraith migrated south so many years ago. 
Now, with that uh, lengthy introduction out of the way, welcome once again to Alert Radio, Jim Stanford. Wow, thank you very much. My ears are burning. That was uh, over the top with generosity, that review. Well, it's uh, a new season here at Alert, and we'd like you to tell us exactly one year after the greatest financial meltdown in the past half century, where is the world economy situated? Specifically, have the trillions of dollars thrown at fiscal stimulus and bankrupt financial institutions thwarted yet another Great Depression? And has the government policy succeeded in what it failed to do in the 1930s? Well, I think they, they have uh, succeeded in thwarting a Great Depression. I don't know if we were ever headed for a Great Depression anyways or not. We were clearly headed for a very serious downturn, and we've had a very serious downturn. Uh, but clearly the, the, the different forms of government support, some of it better than others, uh, has, has helped in limiting the scale of the downturn and I think uh, positioning the economy for a bit of a rebound. The point to remember for, for our listeners, though, on alert, you know, who are looking for, for change, not just for recovery or survival, that they've done that without changing anything. They have not taken seriously at all, the government people, what will be required to fix our financial system. They have rescued the financial system, but they haven't changed any of the underlying problems. So my prediction is we'll have another crisis just like this one, probably even worse, within a few years. So while it appears the consensus is that the economic downturn has been halted, uh, as you say, economic recovery is still uh, appears to be a long way off. Others are predicting that uh, we could be in for another recession before we fully recovered from this one. And uh, can you explain further why um, it is that uh, the system hasn't been fixed, but just sort of bandaged? Well, what we've seen over the last uh, two years, really, is, uh, I think, a rather classic example of a speculative mania, that is, a speculative bubble that blows up to incredible uh, size, followed by the inevitable speculative crash. That is, the collapsing of the bubble and the loss of the paper wealth that seemed to have been miraculously produced when the bubble was expanding. And uh, this bubble occurred, I think, more broadly, more globally than any speculative bubble before, partly because of the globalization of the financial system. Uh, it also rose faster and collapsed faster than any bubble before uh, because of the technology and the more sophisticated, you know, quote-unquote sophisticated uh, techniques that the financial traders use. So it was a very classic, uh, a very classic up-and-down cycle, um, and it was caused ultimately by a combination of speculative greed in the financial sector uh, the incredible uh, injections of cheap, irresponsible credit while the bubble was expanding, that's what fueled the expansion, and very importantly, by a total absence of government oversight and government uh, regulation. Uh, the financial industry has been in successively deregulated under neoliberalism since the 80s, and uh, they've been allowed to do the most unbelievably uh, irresponsible, short-sighted, even immoral things. And uh, so those fundamental ingredients, those three key ingredients, the greed of speculators, injections of irresponsible cheap credit, and lack of government oversight, all three of those things are still there. So what the financiers are calling a recovery is really just a bounce back to the way things were, you know, some years before the, uh, before the last crisis. And they feel great because they see the stock market bouncing back 40 or 50 percent. They see commodity prices bouncing back. They see derivatives bouncing back. So they can make money off paper again, and so they're happy. 
And if all you read was the financial pages of the Globe and Mail, rather than, you know, listening to Alert Radio and reading Canadian Dimension, you'd think the recession was over. But in fact, for real people who actually have to work for a living, the recession isn't remotely over. And even in the financial sector, the seeds have been planted for the next boom and bust cycle, because nothing fundamental has been changed in how the paper economy works. So that's why I say I, I predict very much, uh, you know, maybe, maybe they've avoided the Great Depression for now, but we certainly haven't changed the rules of the game, which means we're headed for another boom and bust and another boom and bust and another boom and bust until such time as we finally decide that we're sick of riding this particular roller coaster. So uh, do you think that we are at the beginning of an area of Keynesian style of economics? Uh, and uh, will that work for the 21st century? And if not, what do you propose? Well, um, uh, it's a funny kind of Keynesianism. It's, it's clearly Keynesian in some areas. Uh, in some areas, it is certainly the case that uh, governments around the world, uh, even reluctantly, uh, our own government here, um, uh, are pumping in lots of uh, spending power, lo- lots of deficit spending lots of new money for different types of public uh, programs or uh, even just to subsidize uh, consumers. So uh, there's lots of, uh, lots of spending power being pumped in by, the, uh, by this new generation of Keynesianism. But uh, it's, you know, again, it's partial, and it certainly hasn't addressed the, the fundamental uh, sources of the crisis. I think most damagingly, uh, most of the governments that are pumping in this money uh, are doing so explicitly as a short-term rescue effort, not visioning a long-run recovery of the public sector or expansion of public services, just some short-term money that they're throwing at the problem in hopes of avoiding uh, an even worse crisis. So uh, it's sort of Keynesianism in the sort of shortest-run, um, most Band-Aid-ish uh, uh, dimension of it. And uh, again, I don't think either the the governments or the financial regulators have really grappled with the true sources of this crisis, which is why uh, I expect another one uh, somewhere down the road, not in the too, too distant future. Well, here's a chance for you to live up to uh, Simon Black's um, description of radical. What do you think would help to steer the economy in a vastly different direction in this uh, new era, Jim Stanford? I, th- I think there's a lot, Jeff, that can be done in the sort of immediate incremental sense to to um, to address this particular crisis, to, uh, uh, to lessen the depths of the crisis, to speed recovery, and to take care of the victims uh, of this crisis. But then I also think there's a deeper, more radical project in terms of uh, reimagining the very basis for economic growth uh, in our current system. The incremental measures, uh, I think, would involve a, a bigger and more progressive stimulus program, where instead of just throwing money at a few kind of make-work projects, half of which uh, haven't even started yet, uh, you actually, on a more sort of systematic and sustained basis, try to rebuild the public sector of our economy, because the public sector is, is relatively recession-proof. It's only the private sector that suffered this big collapse. Public sector employment, public sector GDP has actually continued to grow throughout this recession. So why not take this uh, moment in history to finally get to a national early childhood education program? Uh, that's a form of public spending that's not just to throw money at the problem and hope it disappears. This is where we're actually diverting resources to doing something that society needs and do it on the long on a long run basis. 
Similarly, with uh, the sorts of investments that are required to address the environmental crisis, global warming uh, chief among them, uh, we could see a whole investment-led period of relatively vibrant economic conditions if governments and and other stakeholders were spending the tens of billions of dollars that are needed to address climate change in terms of green energy and public transit and a green car industry and home insulation and so on. So those are the sorts of measures as well as taking better care of the victims of this crisis, uh, starting obviously with fixing our unemployment insurance system, which uh, the Tories and now the Liberals as well uh, are tolerating. So those are kind of the incremental measures. The longer run change that has to happen, though, is, is we have to get less away from relying on U.S. consumers basically spending like drunken sailors uh, to drive our economy forward and instead actually organize and direct our economy to meet human needs instead of whatever activity happens to be the most profitable at any point in time. And that's where you can, uh, you know, you can take charge of the credit system, you can regulate credit, you can use public banks, you can channel the money into the sorts of industries and uh, activities that make sense uh, socially and environmentally in the long run, rather than leaving it all up to the private market. So uh, I kind of have a minimum program and a maximum program. The minimum program is address the crisis that we have today. The maximum program is uh, think about how we've organized our economy, and we can absolutely vision some very different ways of doing that. A couple of examples of uh, the suggestion you just gave us of redirecting government revenues. Uh, well, I, you know, I mentioned uh, the child care thing. There's also uh, other other human services, uh, caring for the aged, aged, for example, as our society ages. Uh, we should have first-class programs, you know, not just medical programs, but assisted living uh, arrangements, uh, recreation and uh, education opportunities for our seniors. And those are things that add to the GDP. They create jobs. They're, they're high-quality services that are delivered. They cost money, yeah and you have to pay taxes uh, uh, to pay for them, but uh, they're things that we can and should do as a society, and that's a very, you know, whether it's taking care of our our kids or taking care of our agent uh, or just investing in the public consumption bundle, which we need to lead a well-balanced life instead of worrying about, you know, when solely how can I get the flat-screen TV at the cheapest possible price, asking, okay, what do we actually need to lead a good life? And that includes private consumption, but it also includes more priv- uh, public consumption. So uh, those are ways in which I think we can redirect our economy so it does a better job of meeting human needs and is more stable. I think it could do the two things at once, but it won't happen through you know the, the, the private decisions of the private sector. It'll happen because we collectively, through government and through our policies, push the economy to move in that way. Final question for you, Jim Stanford. How would you rate the policy directions of the Harper government so far when it comes to the economy? Well, uh, obviously, uh, Harper's uh, team has been in there with a very explicit and I think very dangerous vision for how they want to change Canada and put us on a different track. Um, Now, it's interesting, given A, the minority government that they have to operate within, and B, uh, the depth of the of the breakdown in you know this kind of free trade, free market, free finance vision of the economy, for both those reasons, minority government and the extent of this crisis, Harper's been forced to do some really bizarre things for Harper, right? I mean, running the big what what could very well amount to the biggest deficit in Canadian history, in dollar terms anyway, uh, is pretty surprising. Let alone some of the other things that he's been forced to do. So. Um, I, I don't really give him credit for that, though. He's been forced by economic and political necessity to, 
to do some of those things, and they haven't done it very well. I mean, they have jumped on the stimulus bandwagon, but they've done so reluctantly. And my guess is at the end of the day, they'll, they'll uh, say, oh, the recovery's here, we don't have to spend the money after all. And then they'll, you know, quote-unquote, surprise Canadians with a smaller-than-expected deficit and try and claim credit for it. Um, they do have a, a still a very hard, right, dangerous vision for integrating Canada further into North America, for downsizing government further, uh, for deregulating and privatizing more of our economy. And one of the things I'm most worry, worried about is, is converting Canada's um, evolution into an energy superpower, you know, abandoning our value-added uh, sectors and putting more and more emphasis on tar sands and other horrible uh, industries. That is Harper's vision. It hasn't changed one bit. And uh, I'm, I'm worried, you know, given how bad the Liberals have been in opposition and how Canadians just seem to be a bit tired of minority government, I'm worried that if, if we end up in an election, people might just say, oh, what the hell, and vote for Harper, a Harper majority. And it's, it's as dangerous as ever and it's as important as ever for progressives to show that there's another, uh, another way to do it. And we can't let party brands get in the way of us uh, trying to stop Harper. Well, Jim Stanford, economist, author of Economics for Everyone, thank you very much for your time this afternoon on Alert Radio, and uh, we will definitely call upon your expert advice and uh, opinion once again in the future. Jeff, thank you. I really admire what Alert does, and I'm glad to be with you anytime. Thank you. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes, and this is the 8th anniversary of the September 11th, 2001 attacks on New York City. In its aftermath came the Bush Doctrine, either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Shortly following 9-11, the United States government accused Al-Qaeda, a hardline Islamic organization widely held responsible for numerous terrorist acts, of funding and carrying out the attacks. This led to a global war on terrorism that included the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan with the support of the United Nations. It was also evoked to generate domestic support for the U.S. invasion of Iraq, this time without the support of the United Nations. The war on terror has been used to increase U.S. pressure on groups accused of being terrorists as well as governments and countries accused of harboring them. Saul Landau is author of 14 books, director of 50 films, a Canadian Dimension Collective member and frequent contributor here at Alert Radio. Welcome back to our season opener here at Season 5 of Alert, Saul Landau. Well, thank you for having me. We're glad to have you. You're joining us today from California. And we would like to ask you, from your perspective uh, there in the States, how is the war on terror going in the age of President Obama? Well, I think... The war on terror could be interminable, as has been the war on crime, the war on corruption, the war on drugs, all the different wars we fought, including the war on poverty. And, and don't be surprised if by 2012 we have the war against dandruff. Uh, so the war on terror, in one sense, is going quite well. That is, it will go on and on and on, because terror can't be fought with war any more than crime can or corruption, or poverty, or cancer, or any of the other causes against which war have been declared. But people make a lot of money from this. And uh, anybody who goes to an airport now gets a good dose of it when you listen to some robotic voice telling you that the Department of Homeland Security or Transportation Safety Administration has declared an orange alert now, I don't know anybody who understands what orange alert means, 
but nevertheless, we we hear that, and then we hear that same voice telling us that uh, all baggage must be supervised. And I try to imagine how you can supervise a bag. You know, I tell my daughter, I said, you could get a job supervising a bag. It won't talk back like the unruly kids in class. But this is what war on terror means. It means uh, you've now got a new bureaucracy in the United States. It's called TSA, which I have labeled taking shampoo away, uh, or a thousand standing around. Uh, You have all kinds of garbage and, you know, uh, rights been lost and so on. But as far as I can tell, the source of the terror has never been touched. If you look carefully, the 19 fiends who drove the three airplanes into the Twin Towers and the Pentagon on September 11th, eight years ago, uh, 15 of the 19 of them came from Saudi Arabia, and they plotted the evil deed in Germany. So the United States invades Afghanistan, and then Iraq, and declares a war against terror, as if somehow this, uh, the, the presence of military troops could somehow dislodge a conspiracy among a relatively small group of people. To my mind, it made no sense then, and it makes no sense now. Can you give us any examples of how the war on terror has been used by other countries than the United States of America for human rights abuses? Well, the war on terror gives all repressive agencies the right to disregard all of the previous methods that uh, governments have instituted to protect people's private and personal rights. In the United States, for the first time, a U.S. citizen could be detained without access to habeas corpus. In other words, this went beyond violating the first ten amendments of the U.S. Constitution. This was the abrogation of the Magna Carta. I mean, this was wild. So an American citizen named Jose Padilla was arrested and had no access to a lawyer for well over a year. He was not charged with anything. And, uh, you know, this did not bode well for civil liberties or rights. We have people in Guantanamo who've been there for years and don't know what the charges are against them. Uh, We have allowed torture now to be institutionalized. I mean, this is not something that happened here and there. This was routine and systematic torture that was uh, propagated by the Bush and Cheney um, authorizations. So these are the the results of the war on terror. Has terror stopped? I don't think so. What we see in country after country is mosques that get no orders from any centralized command plotting some kind of horrific deed against uh, the people of their own country, whether it's in England or France or Spain. But this has nothing to do with al-Qaeda. This has to do with now, you know, if you like, uh, a sort of jihad that has almost no central control. And so this is not a war. These are police matters. And Anybody who is sensible, I think, would say, okay, let's get all the countries of the world working together. They're police forces. The only way you can stop this stuff is to infiltrate these cells and and get the culprits before they have a chance to do some dirty deeds. But 68,000 U.S. troops plus Canadian and other NATO troops in Afghanistan 
I think, are creating more terrorists or potential terrorists, and they're not doing very much to get the terrorists that exist. Because, again, go back to where did the money come from for 9-11? And where did the money come from to launch the Taliban in the first place? It came from Saudi Arabia. And as far as I can tell, there's been no action taken against the Saudis, who are good buddies and allies of the Bush administration and now the Obama administration. So do you see a change in policy under the new government? I don't see much of a serious change. Perhaps there will be less torture. Perhaps uh, real action will be taken against the torturers. I hope that that happens. Um, Thus far, the Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder, appears to be willing to prosecute certain uh, cases of torture. We will see. Uh, We will see how far they go in getting uh, to Cheney and to Bush, who authorized torture, which was illegal. And there's no, as far as I can tell, justification for it. But I think it's still too early to tell what's going to happen. In, in other cases, the United States, for, after declaring that, uh, and this is a, almost a direct quote from President Bush, he who harbors a terrorist is as guilty as the terrorist. Now, that was an interesting quote, because in Miami, Florida, right now, and under the Bush administration, two men who are widely held to be responsible for the blowing up of a Cuban airliner in 1976, their names are Luis Posada Carriles and Orlando Bosch. They're both living in Miami. Um, Neither one of them is charged with terrorism. Now, under Bush, you know, you could excuse this, because you could say Bush didn't understand what harbor meant. But you can't excuse Obama. He is far more literate and intelligent. And Luis Posada has still not been charged with that crime, although there are plenty of documents that have been declassified in which CIA and FBI sources both link him directly to the sabotage of that airplane in which 73 Passengers and crew members died. It was a commercial airliner. So the harboring of terrorists, and I could go on, there are others in Miami. But see, their terrorism was committed against Cuba, and that's seemingly okay. That is, if if you commit terrorism against Cuba, like knock down their airplane or put a bomb in Cuban hotels and kill, say, an Italian tourist, that's just collateral damage uh, caused by freedom fighters. And I think that definition has yet to be changed by the Obama administration. Well, Saul Landau, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us here on our season opener here at Alert Radio. We've certainly enjoyed your contributions in the past and look forward to your contributions in the future. Well, thank you, and let's hope that the ghost of, o- of Osama bin Laden is somehow captured by the Ghostbusters instead of the NATO forces. Thank you very much, Saul Lando. I'm Jeff Hughes, and this is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. Immigration stories pop up in the news almost every day, all through the spring and summer months. From April to June, for example, three raids in southern Ontario saw the arrest and deportation of over 100 undocumented workers. Among those arrested were refugee claimants, temporary workers, live-in caregivers and migrant workers. The raids, conducted by Canada Border Services Agency, are the largest of their kind in Canadian history. They are part of a shift in Canadian immigration policy under Jason Kennedy, Minister of Immigration 
integration in the Harper government. In other moves, Kenny is denying refugee status to claimants from Mexico and Czechoslovakia, claiming that these are democratic countries where people can obtain a proper hearing for legitimate concerns. The September issue of Canadian Dimension targets the immigration issue. We call it Barbarian Invasions, Canadian Immigration and the Dynamics of Global Migration. One of our articles focuses on the plight of Mexican refugees fleeing to Canada to escape threats of violence from criminal gangs linked to narco-trafficking. The author of that article is Angela Day. We have her on the phone in Montreal. Welcome to Alert, Angela. Hi. You say in your article that 15 or so years ago, there were only 200 refugee claimants from Mexico, compared to 2,000 or more today. What's been going on to cause this amazing increase? Something to do with NAFTA, you say? Yes, I argue in the article that it is directly related to NAFTA, because um, since NAFTA was er, was signed in 1994, there was immediate displacement of small businesses and local economies. And if we look at that, especially especially in agriculture... And so with that, with um, unemployment, displacement, displacement of the local economy, we see a rise in the illegal economy. And from that, we then see a rise in um, violence, uh, narco-trafficking, and from that, of course, um, refugee claimants coming from Mexico, which, yes, is a democratic country, but is currently um, at the apex of this um, so-called drug war. Now, you were mentioning refugee claimants. You have one particular story that I'd like you to share with our audience. Um a person by the name of Veronica Valesco. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that story. And so I, I'm not going to get into the specific details of their case in Mexico, but they were um, their lives were threatened and they contacted the police for help. And basically since they began to contact the police, they started receiving death threats at their address. So they hadn't shared their their address with anyone else or their contact information and all of a sudden they were getting death threats and and threats to stop pursuing charges against the people who had um, originally attacked them and and through that they came to realize that the police and and government were complicit in in the threats against them and the the possibility of persecution and so from there they then fled to to Canada to ask for refugee status. And so what happened to them when they went to their hearing? When they went to their hearing, they made their case. And now this is a young couple, um, late late 20s, early 30s, with, with four small children. And um, they were heard out. They got, about a month later, a negative decision. This was just about press time of the article. A negative decision saying that they would then, um, that they weren't accepted as refugees to Canada. Wow. You say in your article as well um, that Canada is complicit in the rise of narco-trafficking and the violence that comes with it. Can you explain a little further what you mean by that? I do. Well, by that, I, I, I mean I refer, I'm referring directly to NAFTA and the fact that if we look at the history of trade between Canada and Mexico and we look at how that has affected the Mexican economy, then um, the rise in refugees is related to um, the effects of the signing of NAFTA. And so I would say that through that, Canada is complicit in its origins, origins and thereby should be um, responsible for some of the after effects, like the increase in refugees from Mexico to Canada. Okay. And is there anything positive then uh, that can be said about this situation? Do you know of any organized opposition to what Jason Kennedy is up to? Um... I, I mean, what's definitely glaring right now is the negativity, so Mexicans not getting fair hearings. Um, so right after the article went to press, um, a visa requirement was slapped on Mexicans and, and folks from the Czech Republic, which um, related to the high number of Mexican refugees in Canada. 
Um, and since then, it's a lot harder for Mexican refugees to be heard and heard fairly in Canada. And so what I've been seeing, at least, is a quick turnover of cases for Mexicans in Canada. Um, and Veronica and Oscar, at this point, I called to say goodbye to them the other day because I was leaving from Halifax to go to Montreal. And someone answered the phone and said, no, they don't live here anymore. Um, they've gone back to Mexico. And so this was in, all happened within the past two months. I, I do see in the immigration and the government side of things, actually, I think things may get worse because what we're seeing is a lot of press on the, the drawbacks of the immigration system. And what Jason Kenney is saying is saying that there's a backlog because we have a lot of refugees coming from democratic countries that aren't actually refugees or what he's calling bogus refugees. And I, I think it's actually um, uh, a more holistic look at the system, recognizes that that is not the, the only flaw in the system. Um, I think there are there is community support arising. So if um, I know there is um, a loose crew of folks in Halifax working on issues to support people. I know solidarity across borders in in Montreal. I also saw recently that the Canadian Council for Refugees is doing policy research on the area. So there is um, responses in in society and at the community level. But in terms of the at the government and immigration level, um, there needs to be. Um, more pressure because I see it moving actually in the opposite direction, so punishing Mexicans more. Right. Well, we're going to see what the future will hold with this situation, Angela, and I want to thank you for your time and your insight into uh, this particular situation. Thanks so much. No problem. Have a nice night. You too. Okay. And that was Angela Day of Montreal, the author of the article in the September issue of Canadian Dimension, which targets the immigration issue, and we call it Barbarian Invasions, Canadian Immigration and the Dynamics of Global Migration. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. And Chris, we're happy to welcome a new team member to our program. Very excited about it. Music is the Weapon will now be hosted by Mitch Podolik. He is the founder of the Winnipeg Folk Festival, the Vancouver Folk Festival, and the Stan Rogers Folk Festival in Nova Scotia. Welcome to our program, Mitch. It's going to be a lot of fun to be here. I think I'm going to enjoy working with you guys. We are just so looking forward to uh, hearing what your show is going to be all about. Well, I think that my show is going to be about politics and music and working class culture. I think that's kind of my basic approach. I think, uh, well, you know, there's a lot of arguments about, you know, what is folk music and what is political music and... Uh, Big Bill Brunsey said that all songs were folk songs because he'd never heard a horse sing, right? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's kind of nice. That's, that's true in one level. And when you when you talk to Pete Seeger... Can you have it for a sec? I need a pop filter for him. Oh, okay. For me? I just need a pop horns going... I think we'll just have Mitch, Mitch start, like, when I say welcome sure Mitch Podolik, the the and then you... you know, well, no, let me just pick it up from where I was. He's going to turn the mic, because you're like me, I pop my piece, so talk through the side of the mic, not the front of it, right? All right. Thank you. Thanks, I'm, uh, Podolik. I'm, uh, at the moment, without teeth. No, that's fine. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to sound different with teeth. I know I am. I you try, are? I tried it right yeah, away with the teeth in this morning. Aww. Okay, so, um, do you mind starting over, now that we have nope. the foamy? Okay, so as I was saying, welcome to our team here, Mitch Podolik. Well, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I think you guys are quite nuts and exactly <laughs> the kind of people I like to work with. And uh, why am I here? I'm, why are you here? Well, Music as far is as the weapon. I know I'm here to help 
present and play and introduce and inspire people with working class culture. Uh, folk music is that to me. And uh, I'm very much, you know, I'm a banjo player and I, and I come right from a very, very straight ahead folk perspective. Yeah, there's a lot of argument. What's folk music? You know, what is that stuff? And uh, Big Bill Brunsey said, uh, all songs is folk songs. I never heard a horse sing. <laughs> but Pete Seeger says, a song isn't a folk song until someone has passed it down without it being written down. Sort of the transitional thing. And of course, folk music is, people use the word, in the folk music world, they talk about the folk process. I know that as dialectics. And it's really interesting when you start talking to people in the folk world, and if, if you put things in any kind of political perspective, sometimes they get really afraid. For me, it started as a, I was, I, I come from a family of, uh, of classical musicians, of the old-fashioned use of the term long-haired musician. They were, <laughs> my Uncle Phil, who was a, he had a 300-member mandolin orchestra as part of the United Jewish People's Order. And when Phil heard that I was playing the banjo, he said to me, the banjo? The banjo? <laughs> and uh, about a year later, I played him Jesus' Joy of Man's Desiring by Bach on the banjo. And he stuck his nose up in the air and he walked away. So he was, that's the kind of family I come from. But this is growing up in the north end of Winnipeg? No, I don't, I didn't grow up in Winnipeg. That's a mythology. I'm a Torontonian. I grew up in Spadina Riding. My member of the legislature was J.B. Salzburg from the Labor Progressive Party. And I remember my father in the 50s keeping a baseball bat <laughs> by the front door of my house to protect that sign during elections. Wow. So I come from, I'm a red diaper baby. You know that term? Yes, we've heard I it. come from the Communist Party family, and I grew up in that milieu. Now, McCarthyism kind of cooled things out a bit, but so did anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union. It led to a whole bunch of people leaving the Communist Party, including most of my family, some of who degenerated into Zionists, which was a sad business, but that was that. Some of them didn't. We didn't. My sister, Alice, who was six years older than me and who was a brilliant, brilliant person, decided to take me to a Pete Seeger concert when I was 13 years old. I'd never heard of Pete Seeger. And we were up in the front row of the second balcony at Massey Hall. And we, I thought I was going to a classical concert. I thought I was going to the symphony. Out comes Pete. He blows everybody, including me, entirely away. The very next morning, I grab my clarinet, and I walk down to the pawn shop, and I trade my clarinet for a good clarinet for a cheap banjo. And one thing led to the next, and before I knew it, I was interested in folk music, and that's all I was interested. But a strange thing happened that night at the concert. I heard a song. The song is called The Bells of Rimney, and it's a, it, the song is an argument between the rich merchant towns in Wales and the mining towns in Wales, and the, the argument is carried on by the bells. And this song kind of really affected my whole brain. Oranges and lemons, say the bells of St. Clemens, but... Ah, I know that one. My I played dad. that on the piano. Yeah, well, they took... Ira Davies, who was a Welsh writer, took it and he wrote this beautiful piece of, mu of, of words and Pete Seeger put it to music. Oh, what will you give me Say the sad bells of Rimney Is there hope 
for the future, say the brown bells of Methel. Who made the mine owners say the black bells of Rumba? And who robbed the miner say the grim bells of Blinard? They will plunder willy-nilly Say the bells of Kyrophilly They have fangs, they have teeth Shout the loud bells of Neath Even God is uneasy Say the moist bells of Swansea And what will you give me, say, the sad bells of Rimby? Throw the vandals in court, say, the bells of Newport. All would be well if, 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 say, the green bells of Cardiff. Why so worried, sisters? Why sang the silver bells of why? That was The Bells of Rimney, written by Ira Davies, and the music was written by Pete Seeger, and it was performed by Pete Seeger, and it's a wonderful socialist song. And it had a big impact on you, Mitch. It totally turned my brain around because I asked my sister, what does this mean? What are these towns? And she explained it pretty well, actually, for, a, at the time, a 19-year-old Well, can you explain it person. to our listeners? It's an argument between the rich towns and the poor towns, between the merchants and the miners. And it's, it's a class struggle in one song is kind of what it is. And the discussion led me to a whole bunch of places. Pete Seeger, folk music, Ban the bomb. There was a, a girl named Naomi Powell, and she asked me if I wanted to join the Ban the Bomb group at school. She would have asked me to join the Butterfly Club. I would have said yes, too. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the truth of the matter is she asked me to join the Ban the Bomb group, and before I knew it, I was one of the leaders of the Ban the Bomb group. And before I knew it, I was here I was playing the banjo sort of badly, and trying to do political songs because I was interested in ban the bomb stuff. And I met these communists and these Trotskyists. And uh, before I knew it, I got caught up in the sweep of the early 60s stuff, the, right after the Cuban Revolution stuff, before hippies and slightly before Vietnam exploded. But at the How old were you? I was... Uh, I was uh, How old were you, Mitch? I think when I started playing the band routine, by the time I joined the Young Socialists, I had just turned 15, I think, something like that. So you that. were a young activist, I was, and I, you've continued time, to well, be. Well, by the time I got to be 20 years old, I was a vet, <laughs> you know? I was a vet in a lot of things, in, right. in a lot of different kinds of struggles. Uh, sometimes they were physical, sometimes they weren't. There was street stuff, there was anti-cop stuff, there was all kinds of stuff. There was learning how to marshal, learning how to fight. And you've paralleled activism you know, with your music. And it, it, w it was always music and politics were always part of it. What then happened, though, is I began to fall in love with the harmonic vibration, 
with the music itself too. And so that became a really big, important part of it. So for me, there's two parts to, to music. One is the words and the social content and all that stuff, but there's also just the music. The music itself can be very, music is powerful, powerful stuff. It can move people. It, it does all the time. inspire people. You so <coughs> I begin to understand about how the vibration works. You know, it's like one, one, one man's hands can't tear a mountain town, but if two and two and 50 make a million, and that's how music works too. When you have unity and harmony with people, it's really amazingly powerful force. I figure there's a sun, and then I figure there's harmonic vibration as the powerful forces on the earth. And so it's kind of it's interesting when you move on. I, I quickly became a, a Seeger fan and started listening to every single record and Woody Guthrie and everything. And I got inspired mostly by songs, but my, one of my favorite songs that I heard when I was a kid turns out to be a really old classic labor song. I've got a great recording here of Pete Seeger. Today, today I thought I would just bring Pete Seeger, by the way. Great. Uh, and I thought I would do that on purpose because, for me, folk music and music starts with Pete. Okay. You know, yeah. and that was a good place to start working with you guys. So here's a great old song called The Banks Were Made of Marble. I've traveled around this country From shore to shining shore it really made me wonder The things I heard and saw I saw the weary farmer A plowing sod and loam I heard the auction hammer Just a knocking down his home but the banks are made of marble With a guard at every door And the bolts are stuffed with silver That the farmer sweated for I've seen the seamen standing Idly by the shore And I heard their bosses saying Got no work for you no more But the banks are made of marble With a guard at every... I learned that song when I was 13 years old. That's Pete Seeger singing The Banks Were Made of Marble Written by Les Rice. I always wondered who Les Rice was. I guess one of these days I better research it. Because <laughs> he wrote such a brilliant song. Les Rice. Leslie Rice. Les Leslie Rice. Rice. And you know, Pete Seeger's obviously been a huge influence, Mitch, in your uh, life. What other artists have had an influence on you? And that, what other artists are listeners going to be able to tune in and listen to? Well, people show? can be able to hear two different kinds of shows from me. They're going to be able to hear historical shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, that take us back into the history of the labor movement or the anti-war movement or, or any of those things. But I'm, I'm also really on top of and trying to be on top of the young political writers. And uh, like people like Joe Jenks, who have written some great songs. And uh, it's, it, there's a lot of things that, are, that are, po- are political that don't necessarily have a big capital P, and I'll be doing a bit of that as well. 
I think, you know, it's very political when someone picks up an instrument and says, I can make my own music. That's a really political act in a lot of ways. I've always believed that. That's and a good point. People that empower themselves are really the strongest people that we have in the world. And uh, so I, 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 I'll do that. But you could, for instance, count on me doing a show about Irish revolutionary music. There's no question at all that I'm green in my heart. <laughs> and there's no question at all that I'll do it. So <laughs> I don't doubt so, that. So uh, we just lost Tommy Makem. He, Tommy Makem was probably the the greatest of the current generation, uh, the previous generation of the Irish singers. And the third album I ever bought was an album called The Rising of the Moon with Tommy Makem and the Clancy Brothers. And the reason I bought it is I went into a store, in those days records were $4.20, all of them, and there was a Columbia record of these crazy guys called the Clancy Brothers. And there was a little picture of Pete Seeger playing the banjo on this album. Right. I thought... If Pete Seeger is good enough to play backup for these guys, I should buy this record. And, of course, I got introduced to Irish music that way. There you go. And then I got introduced to Irish revolutionary music through those guys. You know, and uh, I know a lot of it. I can sing a lot of it. I'm a terrible singer, so I won't. But I, you know, it's like a... You'll let them do the, the work. The definition of a, of a, of course, of a, of a gentleman is somebody who can play the bagpipe but doesn't. Well, that's how it is with me as a singer. So... But I know lots of great songs, and I'll bring lots of great music. Uh, Mitch, when you've been founding folk festivals across the country, is political? Is there? Is it always political what you're doing, or as well as sharing music? Well, you know, there's a, there's, there's a, that's a whole big question. It's a gigantic question because the structure of folk festivals in our last few minutes is political. The structure of people being self-active and being self self-active leaders is political. So, in that sense, yeah. The politics of the music comes and goes. It depends on the generation. There was a great batch with the civil rights music. You know, there was a great batch with Vietnam. There's beginning to be songs about Afghanistan. There's beginning to be Canadian songs about Afghanistan. And I'm going to bring them to this show. That's fantastic. Well, we look forward to that. This is, of course, Alert Radio with our new host for Music is the Weapon, Mitch Padalek. And uh, we are so glad to have you joining the Alert team. You I'm bet. so glad to be here, folks. Well, that is it for our season opener of Alert Radio. We are glad that you all tuned in to listen to us once again, and we have some new people to thank here at Alert. Our first one is our headline writer, Sagan Morrow. And Around the Left in Seven Days is compiled by Ben Wood. And our new technical producer, Andrew Velpe. Of course, we can't forget to thank our executive producer here at Alert Radio, Cy Gonick, who is also publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine. Of course, Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can also hear us podcast free on iTunes. You can also click on CanadianDimension.com or Rabble.ca. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.